There's a story about two brothers, one of whom was a very, very strong pessimist, always looking for things to go wrong, expecting things would go wrong. And the other brother, very strong optimist, always expecting things would go well and go right. And I would say, stop me if you've heard this one before. Don't stop me, but maybe you've heard this one before. So their parents decide to take them, you know, as parents often do, for, you know, a little bit of kind of psychological evaluation, some testing, kind of see where they're at. And so they take the brother who's extremely pessimistic first, and the psychologist shows them into a room that is piled high with brand new gleaming toys. And the child takes a look at this room and immediately bursts into tears. And the psychologist says, what's wrong? And he says, yeah. And then goes on to say, I don't know which one to play with because I'm pretty sure if I play with it, it will break. And then the psychologist brings the optimistic child into a room which is piled high as well, but not piled high with brand new gleaming toys, piled high with horse manure. And the optimistic child just looks at it, and actually the psychologist has to be excused for a moment. And when the psychologist comes back, they, they look into the room, and they don't see the child. All they see is the pile of horse manure kind of moving around. And then, oh, my God, the psychologist recognized that the optimistic child has dove, has dived into the pile of horse manure. And from the middle of it, here's a voice. There's got to be a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> I love that one. Uh, and actually, I, I love it for kind of different reasons than sometimes it is presented to people. Sometimes it is presented as kind of this all-American, can-do attitude. We can get it done. There's got to be a pony in here with all this manure. I actually think it's a wonderful story about the power of delusion. <laughs> about actually what unbridled, pun intended, sorry, uh, optimism can mean and do. And the fact that sometimes it's a really wise and good thing to know when it is to quit, to pause, to stop. Renunciation is not a real big American word, right? We're kind of more into accumulating skills, gifts, talents. But renouncing, renunciation, quitting, I mean, I stand before you as someone for whom quitting drinking was the single most important choice I ever made in my life. I'm a fan of quitting rightly, of finding the circumstances in our life when it is time to say, we got to take a break. The tradition I grew up in, Judaism, about which I didn't know much Spiritually, until actually I became, ironically, a Unitarian Universalist. We're right in the middle of what's called the High Holy Days within Judaism. The space between the New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and coming up in the middle of this week, Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Forgiveness. Of writing a new story in our lives. And as some of you might know, the practice on that highest of holy days is fasting, renouncing, releasing, taking a break. 
so that we can do the inventory we need to if we really want this next year coming up to be different than the year that was. Now, here's the thing. This is beyond Judaism. This is a practice and a principle in so many traditions of recognizing the value of taking a pause, taking a break, so that we can renew our lives. And yet, there aren't that many invitations to stop, to pause, to quit in our country. It's not kind of an American thing in many ways. I think about... um, Uh, Hamilton, and yes, this is the second week in a row in which there's a Hamilton reference. When you listen to the soundtrack as often as we have in our household, there's probably going to be more uh, Hamilton references coming up in time to come. So there's this song that gave the title today's message called Take a Break, and it's Alexander Hamilton, and it's after the revolution, and the ragtag army had won, and Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, is doing his absolute best to try and hold it all together. He's writing the Federalist Papers, and he's arguing with his frenemies, Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson, about the proper role of government in this new country. And he is just overworking and overworking and overworking, and his wife, Eliza, says, Take a break. Take a break. The song goes, take a break, come upstate. Leave, leave you know, New York City for a little bit for the summer. Come and take a break with us. And he says, no, my work is so important. And so he stays behind by himself. And if you know the story, this sets in a causative form, the series of events in which he overworked, overtired, has an affair. The affair means that he gets blackmailed. The blackmail gets exploited by his rivals, which eventually leads to his own reactivity, which eventually leads to the death of his son by a duel and eventually his own death by a duel. So, folks, take a break or your life could end up like Alexander Hamilton's. <laughs> the stakes for many of us, obviously, are not as strong as dishonor, political dishonor and death. But, you know, sometimes they are, and the emotional stakes are critically important. If we don't reorient our lives to our work, especially our emotional work, especially when we're triggered, especially when we're stressed. Maybe it's because it was 20 years ago this past summer that I had my first real taste of ministry as a hospital chaplain that I recognize a lot of these stories have been coming back to me. And so this is another story from when I was a chaplain 20 years ago at NYU Medical Center in Manhattan. Now, I wasn't even ordained yet. I was like two years away from being ordained. I was really fresh-faced and eager, and I wanted to do a great job. And actually, I turned out to be a really good hospital chaplain. And there was one fellow who I had an opportunity to see a few times. Didn't get to know him all that well. I knew that he was in the hospital for a blood disorder, a blood disease that would end up killing him. And at that point, he was probably not much older than I am right now, like late 40s, early 50s. And like I said, I had a few times to meet with him. And then once I knocked on his door, and in his hospital room was sitting another person I'd never seen before. It was his estranged wife I would come to understand. And so I asked a very simple question. How are you both doing today? Good chaplain presence. How are you both doing today? And the torrent of rage and anger and resentments cascaded out from them. Story upon story upon story of all the old resentments, all the old misunderstandings, all the old pain that they had caused themselves, 
on one on top of another on top of another. And I did, folks. I did my best reflective listening. That sounds like that's causing you a lot of pain as you remember that. <laughs> can, can you hear that when your wife speaks of this memory that she, she sounds angry? <laughs> I did my best reflective listening. And it was no freaking good at all. They just kept upping the volume and upping the volume. And people passing by in the hallway were like craning their necks in because there was so much hurt and anger. And, and nothing I could do was working. So I don't know what possessed me to say this. In the calmest voice I could muster, I said, maybe we might be quiet for a moment. <laughs> now, that's what my outside voice like said. Inside, I was like, OMG. We didn't say OMG. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, my God, please shut up. All you're doing is hurting each other and redressing these old wounds over and over and over again. And there's so much anger and there's so much fear. And I'm only 26 years old. and I have no goddamn idea what I'm doing. And please, please, please shut up. Shut up. Shut up, please. Perhaps we could be quiet together for a moment. <laughs> Where I learned the value of presence or at least hiding Skillfully, some of the things on the inside when you're completely freaking terrified. And I could feel that room after they got quiet, and they did, it kind of remained charged for a few minutes, all that anger. And then something shifted. Both of them started crying. First her, and then him. And she moved from the chair where she was seated to the edge of his bed. And he put out his hand, and she put out her hand, and they took each other's hands. And then after a few minutes more, started talking to each other softly. Still all the old hurt, but approached differently, more kindly, more compassionately, more spaciously. I don't remember anything I said after that moment. I said a few more things, and then I exited to leave them to do the work that was theirs to do. I stopped in a few hours later. The door was closed. I knocked on the door. And I saw something that, as long as I have memories, I hope will stay with me for the rest of my life. You ever see the renderings or the, the uh, images, the sculptures of the Pieta? It's Mary holding Jesus as he's dying. And it's this beautiful, sad, loving embrace. And that's how she was cradling him as she stroked his hair. And they talked softly to each other. And I quickly left the room. Like I said, I hope that memory stays with me for as long as I have memories. Sometimes something works through us in spite of our complete inability to master it ourselves. <laughs> I would say that was true with me in that moment in which I uttered those words, can be quiet for a moment. I had no clue what I was doing. I was just overwhelmed. 
And I would say it was true for the two of them as well. What happens in that space? I think grace is about as good a word as can be given to it. Something shifts. But something shifts first because we have the willingness or at the very least we're just so overwhelmed that we have to release our work. (laughs) Imagine if I had just kept trying to find the one right question, the one question that was going to be so skillful that it was just going to get them to calm down. Reorienting our time, reorienting our work. Opening space is so powerful. And it's something, by the way, that our culture doesn't give us a lot of permission to do. Reorient our time and our work. Maybe you've heard the phrase chronos time before and kairos time before. They're Greek words. Chronos time is the kind of time that we think of as normal time. Chronos, chronologically, linear time. It's the kind of time that, especially if you're a uh, you know, professional and people pitch programs to you to make yourself more efficient, the four-hour work week or the ten steps to this or the eight principles of that, you know, the kind of thing that will say, this will get you working as skillfully and as efficiently, as quickly as you can. That's all chronos time. And there's nothing wrong with it. I like being efficient. Life is busy. But when life is all chronos time, doesn't have much space for a different kind of time. Kairos time. Now, what is Kairos time to me? Well, it's many things. It's my daily meditation practice. It's mindfulness. It's nature. It's art. But let me also tell you what Kairos time was for me really recently. (laughs) Springsteen. Four hours in 90-degree heat, sweating and crying and dancing. That was Kairos time. Kairos time is where something new emerges from within us. Kairos time is a reframing, a renewing of our experience. Kairos time, another word for it, is revelation. Some new awareness emerges. Now, what's necessary for Kairos time is we can't treat it like work. We can't treat it like efficiency. Kairos time is anything that we do with compassion in a non-utilitarian, non-exploitative way. Kairos time can be art, can be meditation, can be spiritual practice, can be sex, can be any act of creation in which we open ourselves up radically. And are not so wondering anymore about the outcome. But allowing something new to come forward. I like to refer to it in my own life as being restored to factory settings. (laughs) Kind of an original blessing comes forth again. But it's very different from organizing our lives so that we're the most efficient we can be. And this is for me the inner meeting of the high holy days. Something... You know, i got to be honest, uh, no surprise to you if you've been around for a while, the traditional, many of the traditional images of, of God don't, don't really work for me. They're too controlling. They're too out there and not enough in here and amongst us. But the truth is, something moves. I have felt it in my life over and over again, and God is as good a name as any other if it works for you, and it often does work for me. The shift in consciousness This something that takes on the form of our hands, but is not fashioned only by our hands. 
the poet Wendell Berry puts it this way. Wow, these works, this makes so much sense. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. See, we open ourselves up to a different way of being, to a shift in consciousness, to letting go for a moment all the questions about what's going to be effective, what's going to be efficient. We're taking a break. And we're not giving up hope that we'll find the possibility or the opening of way. It just means that we don't know it. If we admit for a second that maybe, you know what, even if we don't say the words, we need a little bit of help. We need a little bit of assistance. When we truly take a break, we may not know exactly what we want to do, but we're open to the fact that something new might emerge. We reframe our power. We open to a deeper power. And yes, we can experience also forgiveness and renewal. I have seen it in my life over and over again. And it means just stopping long enough. Like right now, stopping long enough. Maybe you're thinking about what do you have to do after this. And yeah, I'll be done soon and you'll be on with the rest of your day. But just for a moment, recognizing what is it that you think is so important important you have to do and may in fact, it's so important to you, cause you so much stress that you don't know how you're going to do it. I would encourage you to take a break. This is not just heart healing. It is also life-saving. This makes a difference individually. It makes a difference institutionally as well. It makes a difference in our culture, or it could make a difference. Some of you know who this person is, this picture I'm going to show you right now. If you'd show it, please. You remember her? We are encouraged to say her name. Sandra Bland. She died. She died in prison. And by all accounts, she should not have been in prison. She had just moved to Texas, and she was pulled over on the slightest, barest, unbelievably unreasonable provocation. And this is one of those places where we have the video. And we can see that, yes, she is freaked out. But you know what? I've been pulled over by police before, too, and I get freaked out. And the police officer, all he does is just pile it on and pile it on and pile it on and escalate. Sandra Bland's family, she committed suicide in jail, it appears. Sandra Bland's family sued. And there was a settlement of about $2 million. Within that settlement is a commitment on the part of that police department to retrain their officers to de-escalate. Not just to escalate, to recognize that they are in a position of tremendous power. This is what it means to take a break. It can save lives. And it came up in the VP debate in this past week. I absolutely agree. This isn't just about the police officers. This is about our culture. And I'd say if we want to really change and recognize, 
still the absolutely harmful, absolutely oppressive effects of white supremacy in this culture and all the ways in which our culture encourages us to mistreat each other and mistreat ourselves, we need to take a break. We need to take a break and open that space for judiciousness, for de-escalating. Here's the interesting thing. All these uh, arguments, which I don't think lead us anywhere over this country, and they go back to the time of Hamilton. We're a Christian nation. No, we're not. I think actually they're pointless because what I've come to believe about this country is actually we are an incredibly irreligious nation. (laughs) We are an incredibly sacrilegious nation. We can reduce anything to a matter of productivity. Not opening up space. Honestly, what I would hope for in this season, at least on the Jewish calendar, maybe an opportunity for repentance. And that's not a word I use very often. <laughs> but what would it look like for all of us to say, we need to take a break to give ourselves the space that this culture needs to heal and to do some inventory and to recognize that the level of stress that we are living under means we really can't face the problems that are ours right now. Because we won't get any distance. In closing, there's a woman named Judy Brown who wrote a poem called Fire. She says, what makes a fire burn? Think about this, it's absolutely true. What makes a fire burn is space between the logs, a breathing space. Too many logs packed in too tight can douse the flames almost as surely as a pail of water would. So building fires requires attention to the spaces in between as much as to the wood. When we are able to build open spaces in the same way, we have learned to pile on the logs correctly. Then we can see how it is fuel and the absence of fuel together that makes fire possible. All fuel burn up instantaneously. Especially if we're angry, and there's a lot to be angry about. But how to bank that anger so it turns back to justice, back to love, back to compassion, back to the possibility of forgiveness, that needs space. So again, I ask you today, in a larger culture, in your own heart, what are you working so hard at that you have become completely counterproductive at it? And how might you let it be? How might you take a break, get a breath? One of the great paradoxes of the spiritual life is that, in fact, it is emptiness first that allows us to be full with the charge of the soul. May we be empty first and then allow ourselves to receive. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? Breathing in, we take what we need, and yet we can't stay in that place. We have to breathe out as well, too, breathing in and out the Spirit, being inspirited, being connected, recognizing this always moving flow between give and take of life. Life is movement. Life is moving within us. Life is moving around us. And yet sometimes we hold on so tightly. 
thinking that our work can be the best work we could ever do right now and it'll make everything okay and everything solved. And we just recognize like that little boy, covered in crap. Folks, may we take a break. Room enough for the soul to find us again. Room enough for blessing to find us again. Room enough for love to find us again. They haven't left. We just need to open space for them. Amen.